0: Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence based research and cutting edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Hey everyone, welcome back to season four of the Performance Nutrition Podcast. As always, connecting you with evidence based insights from world leading experts take your nutrition game to the next level. I hope you're well. I hope you are staying at home. I hope you're self-isolating and taking care of one another. I know there's a lot of hours to fill in the day, and hopefully this next hour of podcasting will help to fill some of those hours for you. I've got a tremendous guest here today, Dr. Patrick Wilson, the Director of the Human Performance Laboratory at Old Dominion University. An author of the upcoming new book, The Athlete Gut, is on the show. Patrick earned his bachelor's degree in dietetics from Minnesota State University and master's and doctoral degrees in exercise physiology from the University of Minnesota. He also completed a 10-month internship at the prestigious Mayo Clinic and received postdoctoral training in sports nutrition at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. In this episode, Patrick's going to share with us a lot of the insights that he's researched and learned in his upcoming new book, The Athlete Gut. He's going to share how short, intense, and prolonged endurance exercise bouts impact the gut in interesting ways. Why female athletes may experience more GI symptoms than men. The two most aggravating fermentable sugars that you should be mindful of in your diet The theoretical benefits and limitations of MCT ingestion during exercise. The long-term implications of restricting fermentable carbohydrates in your diet. And of course, the strong mindset-anxiety connection and much, much more. Tremendous book. Uh, The Athlete Gut really recommend if you're interested in sport nutrition, if you're interested in, in digestion and as it relates to even health. This is a tremendous, tremendous book and resource of course you can find all the links in the podcast summary in the show notes at performance Podcast.com. If you're interested in more on the topic of digestion, we've got some past episodes you might enjoy. Season 1, episode 18 with Dr. Tommy Wood on the athlete gut and rebooting your digestion. Season 2, episode 29 with Miguel Mateas PhD, the microbiome gut brain axis and how to build a healthy gut. And Season 2, Episode 30 with Ben Brown, N.D., on IBS, Does It Exist? Insights, Testing, and Solutions. Remember, if you enjoyed this episode with Patrick, definitely please share with your friends, colleagues, and community. Pass along to anyone who you think might benefit from Dr. Wilson's insights here today. Alright, before we get started, this episode is sponsored by my new book, PEAK, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. It's been pretty cool to see Peak as an Audible number one bestseller over the last 10 months. So shout out to everyone for all the support. And to all those who've left reviews on Audible and Amazon, like this one from the UK, Peak is well-written and covering a wide range of topics. This is an excellent book. I probably could have saved myself time and money by just reading this book, rather than the stack I've got through in the last six months on sleep, nutrition, and recovery. Peak brings together the latest thinking and science on a wide range of topics in a manner that is both educational and entertaining. Thanks, uh, D. Palmer there for the, for the note. Much appreciated. If you'd like to leave a review on Audible or Amazon, very much appreciated as well. And of course, you can share your feedback on social media. Just use the hashtag, GoPeak. And don't forget to tag me in at Dr. Bugs. All right, Season 4, Episode 7, with Dr. Patrick Wilson talking the athlete gut. Enjoy. Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time today. Yeah,
1: it's great to be here. I'm glad you invited me on.
0: Terrific. Well, listen, I appreciate, again, you coming on. And I think the best place to start today would be for you to tell listeners a little bit more about yourself and your background in research.
1: Sure, so I am currently a faculty member at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. I direct the Human Performance Lab here. I did my PhD at the University of Minnesota. I did a postdoc at the University of Nebraska and then came out here in 2015, I believe. So I've been here for about five years. And I primarily do research on sport nutrition topics uh, with the focus on gastrointestinal symptoms in athletes uh, not only nutrition though but in the last couple of years here I've been starting to focus more my attention on some of the psychological origins of gut mm-hmm. problems in athletes in large part because there honestly is not a whole lot of research there surprisingly you know you hear a lot of anecdotes of athletes kind of giving getting the nervous gut syndrome before a race or a game and we know uh, that those anecdotes are out there, but there isn't actually a whole lot of research to back up how much of a problem that is sort of more systematically. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a broad range of research interests, but in terms of, you know, obviously the book, The Athlete's Gut, you know, I spend a fair amount of my time uh, looking at nutrition and psychological origins of gut problems in athletes.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating stuff, and your, your book is tremendous in the sense of these are questions and symptoms and things that over the last you know, decades we've seen in athletes and clients. And of course, as this has been accumulating, it's great to see, you know, the research going into that area and all the different insights that you've been able to obviously come across in your research, but also in putting together the book. So, you know, with all the different symptoms that we see from bloating, discomfort, pain, I mean, the list can get pretty long. One of the central themes that you talk about in the book is this idea of reduced blood flow to the gut. Can you explain a little bit more depth about how that impacts gut health and potential for uh, gut concerns.
1: Yeah, and that's probably why you see gastrointestinal problems being more prevalent in short, high-intensity uh, exercise situations, as well as super-prolonged stuff like ultramarathons, uh, where the incidence of, for example, nausea can be you know 60% of athletes. So when you're exercising intensely, you get a large release of stress hormones like adrenaline, that are going to redistribute blood away from your working muscle to uh, excuse me away from your guts to your working muscle uh, because obviously that's the priority right during exercise is you need to supply that muscle with oxygen with energy so that it can do its work so very high intensity sustained exercise can do that more dramatically but then as you go into farther distances you see Uh, Reductions in gut blood flow happen fairly um, uh, in a large fashion, in part because people sometimes become dehydrated, Uh, they may not be drinking enough fluid, because of heat stress and sweating. Mm -hmm. There's just kind of fewer resources to go around to a degree when it comes to fluid, uh, and that can be a contributing factor in some cases to pretty much every symptom. I mean, consistently across the board, you see when studies put people in a heat chamber, and they make them exercise and compare it to in a more temperate environment, most gut symptoms get uh, more severe. Mm -hmm, So it's it's one of those underlying factors that probably makes most symptoms worse. You know, whether that be nausea, bloating, cramping, you know, it's kind of one that triggers most of the symptoms that you think about being associated with uh, exercise.
0: It's interesting because obviously today, you know, distance running with ultramarathons and these longer events are becoming increasingly popular and you know people like to combine these things with the holidays so you'll often be going to Mexico or Jordan or, or somewhere quite warm to, to do these long runs and so when we talk about you know overheating and the symptoms in the gut are we just talking about the people who are really pushing at that high end of performance or in, tr- in terms of that that effort level or even in if the environment's warm would even sort of a recreational ultramarathon or you know, need to pay some attention to what might be happening in the gut.
1: It's it's both. So the studies that put people in a heat chamber and then look at gastrointestinal function and symptoms, most of them are using, you know, well trained people, but they're not usually elite in most cases. It's hard to get enough subjects for a study where sure. all your participants are going to be elite. So most of those studies, they're using well certainly well trained people, but yeah they're not necessarily going to be the winners of most races so it does make a difference uh, if you're exercising in a hot and humid environment regardless of, of whether you're more of a middle road runner or someone on the higher end you know if you're really not working very hard at all if you're like walking most of a race it's probably less likely that you're going to have problems uh, but anybody who's working at a decent clip heat and humidity are one of those things that seems to make You know, gastrointestinal problems worse so one way to potentially approach dealing with that is to um, help manage the heat stress that you encounter in those environments
0: Absolutely and I mean you talk about as well in the book the incidence of gut symptoms being higher in groups like younger uh, athletes or trainees those with less training experience of course those who have a history of gut symptoms and, and women as well And so is there anything in particular in in terms of why females are potentially experiencing an increased rate of gut symptoms? I mean, we know we see IBS rates higher and whatnot, but is there any other um, root causes there for female athletes?
1: You know, as as I was writing the book, I tried to dive into that a little bit. But honestly, it seems a bit hard to pin down exactly why. I mean, you see obviously some... Gastrointestinal-related symptoms vary throughout the menstrual cycle, particularly like bloating. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense that that's going to be higher um, in women, especially during you know, certain times of the month. Even after accounting for those differences by the menstrual cycle, you still see most gastrointestinal symptoms reported at a higher prevalence in women than in men. And that's true not only for athletes, but also for
0: non-athletes. General population as well, right?
1: Yeah. So you know, perhaps it has to do with how men and women sort of perceive um, things that are occurring in their body. Maybe women are more open to reporting some of those symptoms. <laughs> yeah, they just realize so what's also, going on,
0: whereas men tend to ignore it.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a broad generalization that is <laughs> for sure.
0: Buddy, no, uh, for sure.
1: Yeah. But yeah, that's one hypothesis as to why maybe you see a higher rate of symptoms in women. But honestly, it's, it's a little bit of a mystery, particularly during exercise when there's not necessarily a whole lot of research there to parse out, you know, do men and women respond differently in terms of gastrointestinal function and symptoms. Most of the studies that looked at gastrointestinal function in exercise used men. So it's a bit hard to kind of look at the mechanisms and figure out exactly why some of these problems are more uh, common in women. It's not every symptom, for example, like heartburn tends to be more common in men, but constipation, bloating, uh, those tend to be more common in women.
0: Yeah, and if we look at fueling, you know, if we shift gears a little bit to fueling and of course talking carbohydrates, we know that at exercise intensities, at high intensities, carbohydrates are really driving performance and of course you know, team and strength sport athletes were looking for around four to seven grams per kilogram uh, per day and with endurance sport that can ramp up to you know six to ten kg uh, grams per kg per day so there's a big there's a big range there and of course with all those carbs going into the gut particularly again with the endurance athletes many of them being simple or highly fermentable you know how does that potentially impact the athlete gut and then the you know in your work looking at the application of you know, lower FODMAP diets, what what do we yeah. see there in terms of potential improvements? So
1: I think there's potential for both advantages and disadvantages when eating a larger uh, proportion of your diet as carbohydrate as an athlete. If you're gonna eat a fair amount of carbohydrate during a race, so if you're a marathoner or something like that, and you're gonna push the boundaries of what you can do during that race nutritionally, then it does make sense to eat a high carbohydrate diet, particularly in the few days before that event. There are adaptations that occur in the gut that allow you to better absorb that carbohydrate and utilize that carbohydrate that you're taking in during the race. Now that said, there are some athletes that struggle with higher carbohydrate diets, particularly when you have um, certain type of carbohydrates that are not as efficiently as absorbed in some people. They're the FODMAPs for oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols. It's kind of a mouthful. (laughs) Yeah,
0: FODMAP's a handy uh, acronym. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, things like lactose, fructose, uh, fructans, certain people just have trouble digesting and absorbing uh, much of that carbohydrate load if it's in that form. And the downside of that is when you leave carbohydrate in the gut and it's not absorbed, it has to kind of go somewhere. And it goes into your colon eventually getting fermented and that can cause bloating, gas, and other unpleasant symptoms. So there's, there's been a few studies now in the last few years that have looked at lower FODMAP diets as a way to reduce symptoms in athletes or in people who are training, uh, doing running. Uh, and there's been kind of mixed results on that. I think the best one uh, came from Stephanie Gaskell uh, where they did a 24-hour low FODMAP diet and saw a reduction in symptoms during exercise. I think they did it in the heat as well, and that seemed to be, you know, pretty positive in terms of if you're someone who's consuming a lot of those FODMAPs and you're having bloating issues, gas, abdominal discomforts, it's something maybe worth trying in the 24 to 48-hour period uh, before a race or a game. Now, I wouldn't necessarily follow that diet all the time because it tends to be fairly restrictive And those FODMAPs actually serve as fuel for the bacteria in your colon. So there's some concern that over the long run, it may not be the most health-promoting thing if you want to optimize the uh, health of your gastrointestinal tract or your large intestine. But short-term, temporary, seems to be something that may be helpful for some athletes, particularly those who are eating a lot of FODMAPs.
0: Yeah, it is interesting that uh, you know, trimming the diet like that, and having more of a restricted diet when people are struggling even with IBS or I B D or, or with, you know, gas and bloating that being able to restrict it with something like a low FODMAP diet can definitely be very helpful and I guess the as you mentioned, the tricky part is and you know, generally endurance athletes tend to be quite compliant, but in other sports as well maybe less so, and so it gets difficult yeah. to to get people to stick to this type of diet. And so, you know, I love in your book you kind of you, you go over You know, if people aren't able to adopt a low FODMAP diet full stop, you know, what are some of the maybe key sugars that they could think about reducing or eliminating to be able to get a lot of the benefit?
1: I would usually start with lactose and fructose. So those are two sugars that oftentimes are fairly high in athletes' diets. It depends on the person, obviously, but a couple of case studies that have reported FODMAP intakes of athletes, those tend to be pretty high. Uh, And a lot of the benefit may be due to just simply reducing lactose intake uh, and fructose intake. So, you know, I would start there because they tend to be easier sugars to isolate. You know, Mm -hmm. lactose is basically found in dairy products. And then fructose is in a handful of things in high amounts. And you can find lists online to kind of identify identify those. Uh, But that would be probably a simpler thing to try first. And then if you don't get relief from that, You know you could go to a full low FODMAP diet to see if that does anything in terms of the symptom improvements
0: yeah I mean that's great advice and it's uh it's great when it's that sort of simplified because folks can even start with say lactose and just see how much progress they make and then even Mm -hmm. layer on a fructose after that and you know oftentimes as you mentioned people tend to see quite a bit of benefit and so they can then gauge how much buy-in they're going to need or at what point they need to perhaps you know adopt more of a low FODMAP diet so that's That's a terrific insight there. And if we shift gears to talking fat now, of course, you know, low carb and and keto diets really popular, a lot of diets, um, excuse me, a lot of athletes also periodizing carb intake through training cycles as well. And so when we talk about the effect of dietary fat on things like the gut and stomach emptying, can you give us some insights there on what, you know, what dietary fat does to that uh, stomach emptying?
1: Sure. So early on when you switch to eating more fat in your diet, what generally is going to happen is the fat, which is in the form of what we call triglyceride, is going to get partially digested in the stomach. It's going to start breaking apart. There's going to be free fatty acids that come off of that triglyceride molecule. And then as it empties the stomach and goes into the duodenum, which is the first part of the small intestine, there is sensory tissue there that is going to respond to those free fatty acids. Uh, and it's going to communicate back to your stomach to basically tell your stomach to slow down in terms of the emptying rate. One of the more uh, potent things that inhibits stomach emptying is just energy content of the food that you eat. And at nine uh, calories per gram, fat is pretty energy dense.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, over the course of probably days to weeks, what probably happens is there's a reduction in that sort of effect of fat on stomach emptying. So, if you follow a higher fat diet habitually, my guess is, um, you know, over time you're not necessarily going to experience as much of that reduction in gastric emptying rates as you would during the first couple of days. There's not a lot of great long term studies on this and how that impacts, particularly athletes and their approach to feeding during exercise. So, it would be, you know, pretty much just speculation how a high fat diet would impact tolerance to you know, food intake during exercise over longer periods of time. But if you're not accustomed to eating fat and you decide to eat a lot of it, you know, before a game, during a race, it's gonna slow down emptying and potentially trigger symptoms like nausea, fullness, reflux. You can kind of think of the classic example of Michael Scott from The Office uh, <laughs> downing a full plate of fettuccine alfredo before the 5K race that I can't remember the name because it's, you know, 30 words long. And you know he throws up whatever halfway through it because you know he just ate 1,500 calories of fettuccine alfredo, uh, not a good pre-exercise nutrition choice. Sort of illustrating the extreme of what can happen if you make you know a silly decision like that.
0: It's funny you mentioned that because it's it's amazing how life lessons are learned. But you know, grade eight basketball tournament towards the end of the year, I, we had a teammate who you know eating a fast food meal decided to have it really close to game time, about an hour before, and just like the anecdote you shared there he was uh, had to come off and oh, yeah. you know relieve himself and that that sort of stuck with the rest of the team you know <laughs> making sure that we had to fuel um, further away from the game so that's uh interesting there and you know when we look at you know obviously an endurance sport particularly ultra endurance you know lower carb or keto diets are more popular even for higher level athletes who are following more of a periodized carb approach where they're Training days might be lower, but more intense days are higher, and, of course, race day is higher. Um, now, with what you've seen, even you know between the research and just with working with, with athletes, for those individuals who are starting to consume higher-fat diets regularly, would you suppose then that their ability to take that up might be you know, improved in terms of uh, when they're exercising at that, you know for them, moderate pace?
1: You mean to uh, take up and utilize fat that's ingested? Yeah. Uh, prior to and during the race itself
0: yeah, or their ability because their diet's been so you know consistent with being higher fat and lower carbohydrates yeah. yeah their ability to be able to to take that on board and use it rather than having that effect of the stomach uh the slower yeah. stomach emptying
1: yeah and that's my hunch is that they're going to be less susceptible to probably gastrointestinal difficulties or problems if they're you know accustomed to eating higher fat foods so that's something I think needs to be researched more, but that would be my hunch is they are less likely. Now, the thing with eating a lot of fat during even an ultra race is that probably not a huge percentage of that ingested fat is going to get utilized during the race itself. So there's not a overly strong rationale for ingesting a lot of fat to begin with during, during
0: the race, for even, sure.
1: Even, you know, a a 50 miler, 100 miler, you know, as you get into like multi-day events, then it starts to make more sense that your body has time to digest, absorb, and uh, utilize that ingested fat for fuel. But anything that's lasting a half a day to a day even, there's probably not a super strong rationale biochemically to ingest a lot of fat uh, during the race itself. Now, if they do, as you're alluding to, my guess is they're probably gonna be less susceptible to stomach upset than a higher-carb athlete who decides they're going to, you know, stop at an aid station and down, you know, a bag of potato chips with a slice of pizza or something like that, it's going to be more likely that uh, that, that high-carb athlete is going to have problems with substantial amounts of fat if they decide to eat it during the race.
0: That sort of dovetails into my next question around, and you sort of answered it a little bit there, but around MCT use with exercise and performance and, of course, ultra-endurance being one sport where it's often utilized, and, of course, many people um, anecdotally feeling like they're getting benefit and whatnot, but what do we actually see in the research if uh, in terms of potential benefit or, or if there is any?
1: Yeah, so medium-chain triglycerides, they're digested and absorbed a little bit differently from the longer-chain triglycerides that tend to predominate in most foods that people eat. I think it's probably 95% of the fat that people consume tends to be in the form of long chain triglycerides, Mm -hmm. but occasionally people use uh, medium chain triglyceride supplements to uh, maybe theoretically get some of the benefits of ingesting fat without some of the negative gastrointestinal problems. So medium chain triglycerides do not have as strong of an effect on gastric emptying as longer chain triglycerides. So that's one theoretical benefit if you're gonna consume some source of fat during prolonged exercise. The other potential benefit is that instead of being sort of uh, absorbed into the lymphatic system, like long-chain triglycerides are, medium-chain triglycerides are kind of put directly into the blood. It may be more readily used during exercise itself. Now, the issue becomes in higher dosages of medium-chain triglycerides. Gastrointestinal problems go up very consistently. In the studies that have fed people larger dosages in one sitting uh, or before exercise, you see nausea, diarrhea, loose stools, abdominal cramping be quite prevalent. So single large dosages for somebody who's unaccustomed to consuming that is not gonna be a good idea, you know, immediately before or during exercise. Even with some of the theoretical benefits on gastric emptying, um, that you see with the medium-chain triglycerides.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a pretty good way to derail performance, isn't it? To have a, a severe bout of cramping or or a loose stool during exercise yeah. is, uh, is going to not be ideal. Now, if we shift gears here to protein, Patrick, and of course a trend these days toward plant-based proteins or more plant-based proteins, which you know makes me feel a little old because 20 years ago it was also very popular. It's a come full circle here. Yeah. And, you know how do vegetable proteins impact the gut microbiota? And, you know, second part here, if a client is actually struggling with, say, bloating or discomfort, would more plant-based proteins be helpful or potentially hinder?
1: That's a good question. And unfortunately, there's there's actually not a lot of research that actually quantifies gut symptoms on uh, diets that are higher in protein when you vary the composition of... Um, that protein source, you know, from more plant-based versus animal-based. The few studies that I was able to find that I talk about in the book, in some cases, yes, you do see bloating, gas go up in people who are eating more plant-based sources of protein. So if you're consuming more legumes, nuts and seeds, that sort of thing, it is plausible that it could exacerbate uh, bloating and flatulence and that type of problem for people. So if those are the symptoms that really bother you, you know, you'd have to think carefully about the food choices that you make, the protein sources that you decide to eat, and realize that um, plant-based sources are not perfect. They, you know, they we think probably have health-promoting properties, but you know, in terms of gut symptomology, it's not always going to be uh, it's
0: advantage straight line, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, the, yeah, it's hard to say because a lot of studies that vary the source of protein don't hold all other parts of the diet consistent. So they'll vary uh, you know the protein source, but then the differences in fiber intake appear between the groups or you know differences in other macronutrients. So it's hard to sometimes get a real clear sense if it's because of the protein source or something else in that protein source that is uh, causing the problems.
0: And does protein in and of itself have a benefit on the gut microbiota? I know some of the earlier research in the you know, Irish rugby players, there's obviously association between you know, fitness and gut microbiota diversity, but also the you know, protein intake was another association that they found. Is that just something that's happening at the same time with potentially improved gut diversity, or is there potentially a role for protein in supporting that?
1: You know, uh, carbohydrates, fermentable carbohydrates, to my knowledge, are the more important sort of factor that dictates the gut microbiota. I do not really dive a whole lot into how any protein or amino acids are metabolized in the colon based on the gut microbiota. It's, it's an area where I think there's less research and it's less clear exactly um, what the benefits or what the disadvantages would be. To my knowledge, it seems more important to focus on probably the carbohydrate uh, intake in somebody's diet in terms of predicting what's gonna happen with the diversity and abundance of certain uh, bacteria in the, in the colon.
0: Gotcha. So obviously, as you mentioned before, it makes real, makes it even more important than when we adopt strategies that are just going to trim the diet or restrict it for a certain period of time to be able to then find a place to be bringing back uh, more fibers, more carbohydrates, more prebiotics then to support that gut uh, microbiota. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, it's pretty clear that if you, dramatically change the fiber content or the carbohydrate content of a diet, it has an impact on the microbiota in terms of sometimes reducing the diversity or the amount of certain, what we think of as health-promoting bacteria. Another probably million dollar question is, what does that mean in the long term? And to be honest, it doesn't seem like we really know at this point exactly what the long-term health implications of that is. So you're kind of extrapolating from other studies that show a correlation between certain bacteria and health outcomes and then you look at short-term feeding studies or short-term diet interventions and you see changes in those same bacteria and you want to extrapolate out years in advance or years into the future. Uh, but those are two different studies and it's hard to sometimes really know for sure 5, 10, 15, 20 years later what the health consequences are going to be if you decide to heavily restrict fermentable carbohydrates in your diet.
0: Absolutely. and. You know, when we talk performance, obviously we, we've touched on all the macros, but hydration is a really important aspect and of course a pretty fascinating topic with relation to performance because of obviously all the different um, variables with sweat rates and sweat composition. And we you know when we talk about some of the prescriptions around how much to hydrate for athletes or even recreational athletes will say here, because obviously still some debate around drink to thirst versus having more of a prescribed hydration uh, plan. Um, You know, Is there something around the duration of competition here that can help as a simple rule or heuristic or what is ideal in terms of hydration and how might that impact the gut?
1: My sense is as you get to 90 to 120 minutes, that is potentially where in some circumstances it may be beneficial to go above and beyond just your sensation of thirst. You know, I think thirst works pretty well in a lot of situations, particularly stuff that lasts a half an hour to two hours. It doesn't seem likely to me that most people are going to get a lot of benefit from consuming above and beyond their perception of thirst in those situations. But as you get out to races that last, you know, 10, 12 plus hours, you know, theoretically the reductions in uh, plasma volume or reductions in body water in some athletes would be indicative of potentially they may need to drink a little bit more than what their thirst is telling them to drink. it's probably not all athletes but there's a subset of athletes that would seemingly benefit from some extra fluid intake the tricky thing is it's kind of hard to figure that out on an individual basis who is going to benefit who isn't and you see that reflected in the hydration guidelines they're pretty uh controversial depending on what organization you look at and what they're saying and there's a lot of debate about what the optimal approach is i think as we get farther out in terms of durations of exercise the unknown sort of multiply, and it becomes harder to give uh, good recommendations because there's not a lot of research on those durations of exercise when we're talking about ultra races or things that last, you know, more than five hours.
0: And so, for yourself, if you're assessing this and you've got an athlete in front of you who's a marathoner or, or longer events, and you know, just as you mentioned, the research not being clear, and of course, you have this athlete's subjective experience of, of of how they're coping with the with the fluids that they're taking on board. You know, for you, where's that, that middle ground between kind of athlete subjective experience and, of course, what the research is telling us to find that, um, to be able to say, hey, I think this is the right amount of water for that individual.
1: You might need to go and do sort of a field test with an athlete and have them drink at, you know, a rate that's at their thirst and then uh, in a similar environment, in a, a similar pace, have that athlete take a more aggressive approach and see whether or not, It makes any difference in terms of their perceptions in terms of their performance still even then it's kind of difficult because that's just you know one sample of each uh, scenario and day-to-day variation in performance and how you feel can impact those things so it it does get tricky i think accumulating experience over time will help athletes know whether or not thirst is going to be enough for them uh, in terms of their hydration or if they need to take a more aggressive approach. It's one of those answers most athletes don't like to hear is that you probably need to do some trial and error and some testing uh, to see how you respond. Uh, and know that there aren't simple straight recommendations across the board that apply to everybody.
0: Yeah, I definitely have to do some tinkering and you know when we talk about percentage of sweat loss, you know, how does that impact things when we talk about, you know, gut discomfort? So
1: in events where you sweat a lot, so if you take you know the better marathoners in a hot environment, they may be sweating over two liters per hour. You know, when you do the math on it, it becomes pretty hard to replace enough of that fluid to stick with some of the guidelines that have been traditionally put out there. You know, the ACSM traditionally has said, if you can, try and minimize your body mass losses to 2% or less. Now they say in their most recent position stands that you know, gastrointestinal tolerance will dictate whether you can do that. The environmental conditions will dictate whether you can do that. But as you get into that kind of one and a half liters to two liters per hour sweat range, it just becomes <laughs> it's pretty tough, right? <laughs> to replace in some cases even half of that because that's even a, thousand if you're liters, walking. a thousand milliliters per hour. Yeah, unless you're walking. And the studies that try and uh, feed people or make them drink higher rates of fluid. Above and beyond their perception of thirst, we're talking about maybe doubling their regular intake. You consistently see that GI discomfort goes up in those studies, and in some cases, performance is harmed because if you feel bloated and full, you know you're generally not going to be working as hard as you can in comparison to when you feel um, relatively comfortable in terms of your gastrointestinal uh, condition.
0: Absolutely, it's fascinating, isn't it? That just the the, the mindset, the the perception. Um, of how one feels is is dictating a lot of this and so as you mentioned that trial and error and being able to figure out the right amount is uh that that part plays such a big role and of course when we think sweat loss obviously sodium losses can vary markedly from one individual to the next and oftentimes we associate that with increased risk of cramping you know is that something that we see in the research as being evidence-based or is there some uh some gray there in terms of whether or not that's actually true. Whether sodium depletion does lead to uh, to more cramping.
1: I think it's definitely still gray, but the evidence has in the last few years shifted more towards probably showing that it's more likely other factors in the majority of cases that are causing exercise-associated muscle cramps. You know, there have been some studies that have fed people pickle juice, for example, which is high in sodium, and shown reductions in cramp severity. I think Kevin Miller. Um, has done some of those studies, but the thing is pickle juice contains other compounds that may have an effect on the body that are truly responsible for, you know, the reduction in muscle cramping. So these kind of spicy, uh, compounds or things like vinegar, that yeah. you know, pungent activate these receptors in your gastrointestinal tract and your mouth that communicate with your nervous system to maybe reduce, uh, output to, uh, the skeletal muscle. So the, the evidence there is growing that that's a more likely explanation, for example, for why pickle juice or mustard or their sort of spicy compounds seem to be, in some cases, helpful for relieving or reducing the severity of muscle cramps. And for the most part, the studies that have looked at sodium have not convincingly shown that it is a major factor in most cases. I'm not ready to say that it does not play any role in any situation, but I think for the most part, we don't really see intervention studies showing that supplementing with sodium is a good way to prevent muscle cramps. So I would try different approaches, either ingesting something like pickle juice or some of the other products that have been put out there, uh, or you know reducing your training volume before a race or a game, making sure you're tapering, making sure you're not starting the race too fast. Yep. Those are things that I think would be probably more effective ways to reduce muscle cramps than. Um, taking sodium capsules, for example,
0: and you talk about race day nutrition. And of course, you know, a limiting factor to work capacity is that ability of the gut to take up, you know, carbohydrate and simple sugars to be able to work at that rate. And of course, you know, some of the strategies we see now of being able to try to actually train the gut to be able to take up more of these things. And you know, can you talk a bit about that strategy and, and what's happening in the gut, and if that's a potentially viable strategy for? athletes or recreational athletes looking to really perform on race day?
1: Sure. So the gut is a pretty adaptable organ. And I think if you look at case studies or even competitive eaters, you see that clearly people can dramatically shift their tolerance to feeding to the point where, you know, they can consume 70 plus hot dogs.
0: Yeah, it's just awful, isn't it? A
1: couple of people in the world can do that, but it does show that that is possible, right? Now, that's obviously not going to be something an athlete is going to even attempt to do, but it does provide evidence, though, that the gut is adaptable and that if you are habitually practicing uh, your race day nutrition or your game day nutrition during your training, it would lead you to believe that that's going to be helpful for improving tolerance to feeding during your game or during your race. Now, the adaptations that occur in the gut to some extent are probably nutrient specific, meaning if you wanna digest and absorb carbohydrate faster, you should probably eat a high carbohydrate diet. Similarly, we already talked about the effects of a high fat diet. On the other hand, some of them may just be becoming accustomed to food in your stomach during exercise uh, above and beyond what you normally are used to. So sort of just a perceptual improvement in the tolerance and there's studies that suggest that that is part of the reason why you know, if you drink larger amounts of fluid during training, over time you become less uncomfortable with that same amount of fluid. So it's partly probably nutrient-specific, and then partly just effect of you know being accustomed to having something in your gut, or in your stomach, that's a larger volume. Yeah. Now I mean, the question is, oh, I just to say lastly, yep. that the impact on performance is still a bit unclear. So does that extra food intake, does that extra carb intake, and fluid intake? Allow athletes to perform better, and I think it probably depends on the athlete and depends on the event, uh, but not universally across the board. I wouldn't expect every athlete to benefit from that approach, especially if you're a more, you know, middle road uh, competitor and you're not trying necessarily to shatter records or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that you need to take that sort of aggressive approach, um, assuming that you're not trying to be super aggressive about what you're doing during your game or race itself
0: yeah great point i mean there's some of this continuous glucose monitoring studies with uh, recreational athletes showing that level of overfueling of just you know too much fuel coming in that they can't cope with it and you know bonking and hitting the wall later on in the race so that's definitely something to to consider for those folks and you know patrick when we think of the guts and of course so many again clients in the general population athletes over the years coming in with with gut issues and struggling to resolve gut problems even with you know obviously with conventional methods and other methods and you know the mindsets the individual's mindset psychological stress these things over the years you know I've noticed have really play a big role in people's chronic conditions or chronic gut conditions and you know what do we see in the research as it relates to psychological stress and and gut function and you know, in your book obviously even talk about things like injury risk and illness. Can you can you touch on that?
1: So psychology is one of those things that I think definitely plays a large role in gastrointestinal issues for a subset of athletes. Maybe 25-30% of athletes who are kind of your you know, highly strung people who seem to have issues with managing their life stress and anxiety. And my research that I've done supports that. So one of the studies that I've done looked at gastrointestinal symptoms over the course of a month in 150 endurance runners. So basically, they uh, track their gastrointestinal symptom severity after every single one of the runs for that 30-day period. And then at the end of the 30-day period, they filled out questionnaires looking at life stress and anxiety. And of any factors that I evaluated in that study, including age, experience, running intensity, you see anxiety and stress being as predictive as anything else in terms of the severity of gastrointestinal problems that those runners were reporting over a month's time. Now, the correlations are not strong, but that's true basically of almost every other factor we look at in these observational studies, and that's probably because most gut symptoms are multifactorial. Mm -hmm. It's not one thing that generally causes somebody problems. It's a multitude of things. But a person's psychology definitely seems to play a role It's not surprising if you look at the general population Then you see similar correlations. People who are reporting more life stress and anxiety tend to report more gastrointestinal problems, whether it be a diagnosable condition like IBS or dyspepsia, or kind of like a subclinical condition where they don't have um, something quite as severe, but they still have more problems than the average person. So it's a factor that I think, unfortunately, has been understudied in the realm of uh, sport uh, sport performance and training and I think of anything it's one of the more low risk things you could look at in terms of the interventions because we're talking about things like deep breathing, meditation, mindfulness. those are not particularly risky interventions and they seem to be pretty effective at reducing gastrointestinal problems in people who have things like IBS. So I, I hope that the research in the next you know five, ten years, Stuff that not only I do, but that other investigators will take a look at. Uh, are these approaches effective at reducing gut problems during exercise in athletes? Uh, if we can show that, I think it would be, you know, pretty helpful for advancing, you know, a very practical type strategy that could be used by, you know, lots of different athletes, particularly those who struggle with stress and anxiety management.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's something that definitely, you know, in practice over the years, when you have these athletes or clients coming in with chronic gut conditions that improve for a little bit and then tend to wax and wane and of course regress and it's this back and forth, um, particularly if it's you know, athletes or endurance athletes. And over the years I've noticed that, yeah, if we just focus on this stress component, the psychological stress, or as you mentioned, you know, certain individuals being more uh, that anxiety type, and finding ways for them to decompress or unwind, and it's amazing how the trickle down effect on the gut can be pretty powerful. So, you know, look forward to seeing more and more work on that side of things because that would be great to have some targeted approaches for for those athletes for sure.
1: Yeah, and you got to remember that your gut is very highly connected to your central nervous system and your brain. You know, your gut itself has several hundred million neurons in it, so it's really a a spot in your body that sometimes is underappreciated in terms of if you're having gut problems, it's effects on uh, the rest of your life and the rest of your body's function. So in, in some cases, if you deal with the gut issues, as you were mentioning, it can kind of have these cascading effects where it improves you know, other aspects of health, mood, that have wide ranging benefits. It doesn't work for everybody, but certainly there is a segment of the population that seems to respond pretty favorably to things like you know, deep breathing or cognitive behavior therapy uh, or mindfulness.
0: And Patrick, what about things like, you know, caffeine intake, we see, you know, two to four milligrams per kilogram body weight being kind of a a sweet spot for dose, you know, if people start going above that, or maybe even people who are sensitive, even within that range, but is caffeine also going to be more of a stress on the gut? Or is it generally well tolerated by most individuals?
1: It's dosage dependent, for sure. There was a recent study that came out just in the last few months that supplemented people, I think it was 200 milligrams of caffeine per day for three weeks. And over time, they saw some dissipation of things like the increases in blood pressure that you might get with caffeine. But even after a couple of weeks, they still saw a higher uh, reporting of gastrointestinal disturbances uh, while they were on the caffeine condition.
0: Hmm. Now, unfortunately,
1: they didn't really ask specific symptoms, but it's still supporting the idea that for some people, yes, even moderate doses of caffeine can cause uh, more problems. Now caffeine is one of the more well supported things in terms of improving performance across a wide range of sports. 100%. So I you know I wouldn't say avoid it completely. I would say take your own experience into account, practice with it some in training to see how you respond. And then also realize that on game day or race day, you may not need caffeine because you're going to be maybe jacked up anyways. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. I think that's and one of the The nervous system's pretty teed up that, to begin with.
1: Yeah, is that most of these studies are done with people in labs where they're probably not that anxious or they're not that worried about how they perform. Mm-hmm. So how that translates to an athlete who's you know, performing on a Sunday in front of 50,000 fans, that's a bit of a leap in terms of how you should you know, moderate the caffeine dose.
0: And Patrick, obviously running a human performance lab and, and being you know an expert deep in this field, when you look at you know areas coming up or questions that you're trying to still solve, you know what are some areas that uh, you know excite you or problems that you're trying to solve that could uh, potentially provide some some breakthroughs for athletes or even general population?
1: I think doing some more of the research on the actual interventions uh, in terms of the psychological aspects of gut dysfunction in athletes, so, you know, we've got good correlational studies now that show there's a higher rate of gastrointestinal problems in the athletes that are more anxious. But can we alleviate those to some extent through uh, interventions? Beyond that, for other groups, you know, I, things like the hydrogels is becoming pretty popular in terms of research topic. I know there's now four or five studies out on that in terms of whether it helps with gastrointestinal problems. Uh, ketones would be another one uh, supplement that is fairly popular especially among endurance athletes mm-hmm. to see whether or not the data eventually support that being helpful for performance uh in any situation so those would be i guess a few that just off the top of my head uh, i would say are going to be probably heavily studied in the next five years in addition to the fodmaps thing that we talked about earlier uh, and then finally the last one would be the microbiome and whether or not modifying the microbiome either through supplementation or through fecal transplants is a way to actually enhance performance. There was a, a rat or mice study that got a lot of headlines about a year ago or half a year ago uh, where they basically modified the microbiota of these these mice and showed that they were able to run longer on a wheel. Now, whether that translates to humans, I think, is a pretty big stretch, but that's going to be interesting. a interesting area of research in the next five to ten years.
0: Yeah, fascinating stuff. and. You know, for yourself at the collegiate level, when you look at the athletes that you see, um, are there certain sports in particular that you see more um, concerns and distress than others?
1: You know, most of the studies are all on endurance athletes. It's kind of just shocking that there has not been really much of any research just basically quantifying what's the prevalence and severity of GI problems in team-based sports. We're actually doing a study right now on that question Uh, It's a uh, survey-based study that we're running for the next few months um, with a few other individuals, Jamie Pugh uh, and Robert Fern, so we're we're hoping to get some better answers on the issue of gastrointestinal problems in team-based athletes to see if they're less, more, or equal to uh, that of endurance athletes. Now, I would say of any sort of group ultra runners, you see maybe the highest rates you know, you see ninety-six percent in some studies having some gastrointestinal symptoms.
0: That's a lot 60% of Sixty percent
1: having nausea, yeah. and forty percent saying that gastrointestinal problems are affecting their performance. So, that's definitely a group that has a lot of problems with uh, gastrointestinal issues. And then there's some where I would imagine it's probably not super common. I might think something like, um, you know, baseball, volleyball. I'm not going to uh, you know, assume that it's going to be super prevalent to have major problems in most cases.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if, you know, in working in basketball, I mean, I know, you know, more more than a you know greater number of athletes than one would think struggle with with digestive symptoms and yeah, like we alluded to earlier, oftentimes they don't even realize it's a symptom until certain things are highlighted, and then all of a sudden, in retrospect, they realize that they do struggle with you know gas right. or this food is actually causing them an issue, and um, so yeah, it would definitely be interesting to see you know what those rates are because. Um, you know, at us at Canada basketball, even amongst our younger groups at 13 all the way up, then, you know, the rates are, you know, higher than what we would sort of expect. So looking forward to seeing some of that, yeah. uh, research as well. For sure. And Patrick, for you, when you're trying to support, you know, from, a acute setting, you know, maybe you've got an athlete who's competition day, race day, if there's bloating discomfort, um, you know, are there any strategies there that can be helpful in the acute phase or is that, uh, you know, is that difficult in that sort of short time frame? So one thing I try and hit on in
1: the book is that you may need to kind of take a symptom-by-symptom approach to try and deal with some of these issues because each symptom may have different triggers. So, you know, one of the chapters, I basically go through all the symptoms and, and talk about what are some of the likely culprits. And some of them are very similar between the symptoms, and some of them are quite different. So I would have to sit down with that athlete, kind of do an analysis of what they're doing nutritionally on game day, how they feel psychologically. Are they taking any medications uh, that may provoke the gut? So you'd want to kind of start with a basic assessment to see any obvious triggers, you know. And then from there, you would you would implement interventions that would hopefully target the specific in- uh, symptoms that they're having uh, most problems with. So it's yeah, it's a bit hard to say just across the board what would be helpful. For sure, it's largely dependent on what symptoms they have most problems with and what they're already doing in terms of their you know, nutrition, supplementation, and medication usage.
0: Yeah, terrific. And, you know, Patrick, listen to Athlete Gut, phenomenal book. I mean, you you, you dive deeply into the topic, obviously, and cover all areas of of support. And so I think for anybody listening in who has clients, athletes, who are struggling with, you know, GI issues, gut issues, this is definitely uh, a deep dive into the subject. So... Um, appreciate you taking the time, Patrick. You know, where can people stay connected with you and uh, and all your fantastic research?
1: So they can go to my website, theathletesgut.com. You know, the book is coming out in late April. And again, it's The Athlete's Gut, The Inside Science of Digestion, Nutrition, and Stomach Distress. So uh, sometime late April, early May, most people would expect to uh, get a copy if they decide to order it. But yeah, dot com has my information, uh, link to the book, and then link to my social media uh, where they can follow me on that if they're interested in uh, what I'm up to.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll definitely include that in the show notes. And uh, again, appreciate you taking the time today, Patrick. This was fantastic.
1: Yeah. been a great conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. If you enjoyed the content, please subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcatching platform to show your support. Also a special note, this summer we'll be launching an online course centered around the work from my new book, Peak. So if you enjoyed the book and looking for a deeper dive into continuing education in performance nutrition, as well as continuing education units for strength coaches, dietitians, practitioners, then head over to athleteevolution.org, that's athleteevolution.org, and sign up to our pre-sale list we you'll be the first to hear about when we launch this exciting course. Lastly, if you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, be sure to reach out on social media at Dr. and fire away with those questions and comments. Thanks for listening, folks, and see you next time.